Kelsey said it well. Welcome to our, our family night edition of our Wednesday night fellowship. It's so great to have you here, Mrs. Michaelopoulos, Mrs. Palmer. We're so glad to have you here. It's great to have some RUF uh, alum, Anna Cook, Lydia Cook. Welcome. Uh, just to bring you all up to speed, uh, what we've been doing, what, what, what we're doing here. <laughs> this is an opportunity for us to kind of come together to fellowship around food and then to also uh, hear from God's word. I sometimes joke that, you know, Jesus said we can't live uh, by bread alone, not even bread with cheese on top, but we <laughs> depend on every word that comes from the Father's mouth. And so this semester we've been coming, we've been gathering around pizza, gathering around God's word, and hearing what he has to say to us about relationships. Um, we said at the outset of the semester that the quality of our life is best measured by the quality of our relationships. Um, and the reason why that's so is because we're made in the image of a highly relational God. Uh, one God who, who has forever existed as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Because he's a community we are made for, community, right? Persons made in his image. And all semester long, we've looked at the relationships that make up our lives with God, with ourself, with others, and with the world around. Now, all of these relationships have been damaged by sin. It's the sins that we've committed and some sins that have been committed against us. But Jesus has come to restore what is broken and to heal what hurts. He has come to make all things new. Not all new things, but all things new, which is to say that he has come to reconcile us to God and to reconcile us to one another, to fix broken relationships and to make them good and happy and healthy and whole again. Well, tonight, the final relationship that we are going to consider is the relationship that we have with our power, right? How am I and how are you and how are we supposed to relate to the power that God has entrusted to us? And this includes the power of your college education. What are you supposed to do with it? What does it mean to steward your power well? Well, before we look at God's word, it might be helpful just to define what power is. Okay, the Greek word for power is dynamis, which is where we get the word dynamite from. You can use dynamite for good, for example, creating roads and tunnels to connect one another. But you can also use dynamite for evil, as we saw on Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka where terrorists use dynamite to blow up churches and hotels and kill hundreds and injure hundreds more. Power is like that. You can use it for good. You can use it for ill. Martin Luther King uh, Jr. defined power as the ability to achieve purpose and effect change. In his book, uh, Playing God, Andy Crouch defines power as the ability to make something of the world. And even though you are a student... Even though you aren't gainfully employed, even though you might have a curfew this summer, every single one of you has an incredible amount of power. Let me just put your power in some perspective. Today, all around the world, there are 46 million people who live in bondage as modern-day slaves. Many of those 46 million are children. Modern-day slaves work as brickmakers, coffee harvesters, cigarette rollers, and domestic laborers. 
Some as young as nine are trafficked for sex and forced to work in brothels. In places like Haiti or India, you can buy a slave for approximately 50 to 100 U.S. dollars. But because a slave can never earn that much money, they can never leave. If they try, they are savagely beaten and or killed. Now, if power is the ability to achieve purpose and effect change, slaves have little to none. But you, on the other hand, have more than some. Alan's not here, which means every single one of you is a free citizen of the United States of America. He's a citizen of Taiwan, right? (laughs) But every single one of you, as far as I know, is a free citizen of the United States of America, right? The richest and most powerful nation in the world. All of you have or are in pursuit of a college degree, something that only 7% of the world's population has. If you earn, after your graduation, more than $32,000 a year, you will be in the wealthiest 1% of income earners worldwide. If freedom and wealth and education are measurements of power, and they are, you right now are one of the most powerful persons on the planet. The question is, what are you going to do with your power? Are you going to bury it? Are you going to hoard it? Are you going to spend it only on yourself? Or are you going to invest it and unleash it and use your power to empower others? What, friends, are you going to do? How are you going to relate uh, to the power that you have and are going to continue to collect? Well, to guide our conversation tonight, I want to look at a story that Jesus told. Okay, the story uh, that Jesus tells us comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25. It's commonly known as the parable of the talents, but we could just as well call it the parable about power. Okay? The parable of the talents, the the parable about power. You can follow along on the screen. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you can follow there. We also have some free Bibles on the table. If you don't have one, please take one home with you. It's our gift to you. But here it is, uh, Matthew 25, 14 to 30. Okay? Jesus said, for it, he's talking about the kingdom of God. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to him his pro- them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Okay, the Greek word there is dynamis, right? To each according to his power. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well, he also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent. So he took the talent from him and gave it to excuse me. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. It's not my own. So let's pray and ask him to help us to understand it. Father in heaven, thanks for gathering us together again on a Wednesday night. Thanks um, for giving us your word. Uh, Thanks for giving us your son, uh, to whom all of your words point. And we pray now uh, that you would, by your spirit, help us to see what we need to see and to hear what we need to hear and to have hearts that are ready to receive and to believe. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There really are three points, I think, that flow out of this that I'd like to impress upon you tonight. The first is that we need to pay attention to the power that we have. The second is that we need to invest our power and not bury it. And thirdly and finally, that we need to stay connected to the power source. We need to pay attention to the power we have, Invest our power, not bury it, and we need to stay connected to the power source. Let's start with this first point. Pay attention to the power that you have. Well, as we look at this story, we see that everyone in it is entrusted with property. We ask, well, just how much property are they entrusted with? I would steer your ass to verse 15. It says, to one, the master gave five talents, to another two, and to another one each according to his ability, each according to his power. We see here is that the amount of power someone has dictates the amount of responsibility that they are given. The the word talent here does not mean nunchuck skills or computer hacking skills or the ability to sing and dance or do magic tricks. That's not the kind of talents that are being referred to here. In Jesus' day, a talent was a monetary unit that was equal to about 20 years' worth of wages. Simply put, the servants are given a great deal of money. Even a single talent, right, which is the gift that's given to the least talented servant, is the equivalent of approximately a whole lifetime's worth of wages. Uh, At the beginning of this week, um, I was walking into uh, the Davis Center with John Abbott, who's in charge of the outing clubs, Megan's boss, and uh, with someone named Lena Balkum, who's in charge of the Davis Center operations. Now, growing up, I learned this in the short walk from the parking lot to the Davis Center, Lena babysat a lot, and she babysat a lot at home watching her baby brother. Well, after babysitting her, her brother, her dad used to say to her, Lena, the reward for responsibility is more responsibility. 
She was looking for a paycheck, <laughs> right? But he said to her, the reward for responsibility is more responsibility. John and I laughed. Um, I thought later, that sounds a lot like Uncle Ben uh, in the Spider-Man movie. With great power comes great responsibility, right? With great power comes great responsibility. And we see that truth really reflected here in the first verses uh, of the story. The person with little power is given one talent, but the person with greater power is given five, right? With great power comes great responsibility. Let's hit pause on the story for just a moment and let's zoom out for a second and let's collectively reflect. Even at the stage in your life, stop and think for a moment. How much power do I have? How much power do I possess? Ask yourself, what privileges, what privileges did I inherit at my birth? What education have you been given and are also earning? But what gift of education have you been given? What are some skills that you have sharpened through practice? What experiences have you had, good and bad, that have made you stronger, that have given you more power? What comes easy or naturally to you? What are you passionate about or drawn to? In sum, in total, what powers do you possess? I don't trust you to have well-formulated answers to all of those questions. Maybe you forgot some of them. Come after. I can send you a PDF of this if you want. <laughs> right? But I want you to encourage you to reflect on this some more. Right? In your downtime, take inventory. Take stock. Because, friends, with great power comes great responsibility. So what power do you have? This brings us to our second point. What are we supposed to do with the power that we have, with the responsibilities that we've been given? What are we supposed to do with it? Well, the focus of this story is that what we do with our power is more important than the power that we start off with. What we do with it is really important. Starting at verse 16, what we see is that the one who has five talents goes out and he works with it. He trades it. He invests it. And he gets a good return on his investment. He effectively doubles what he started with. He gets five more. And his master says to him in verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Well, the same goes for the one who starts with two talents and ends up with four. The master gives him exactly the same praise, word for word. Verse 23, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. It's important to note this, right? The servant with 10 talents doesn't get more praise than the one who ends up with four. Their praise is identical. Not a word is different. Because both of them went out and invested their talents, which is to say their power. 
they effectively multiplied what they started with. And the examples of the first two servants stand in sharp contrast to the third. Look at verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Right? He buries his talent. He keeps it to himself. He doesn't lose anything, but by keeping it to himself, he doesn't gain anything either. And the master has harsh words. In verse 26, he says, you wicked and slothful servant, you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. And in verses 28 to 30, he tells, take that talent back and cast that servant out. What's the takeaway? What's the point? What's this, I think? We're not to bury our power in the sand. We're not to keep it to ourselves, right? But we are to go out and to use it, that we would trade it and invest it, invest our power in people, invest our power in places, and invest our power in things so that there is more goodness and more beauty and indeed even more power in the world than when we first started. In the book, um, Playing God, uh, author Andy Crouch describes how in his 40s, he decided to pick up and learn how to play the cello. That's a pretty bold thing to do, courageous thing to do, right? Crouch was already a great piano player, but he had never picked up a stringed instrument before in his life. So he goes to his friend, Dane, who was making his living as a luthier, sort of fixing and repairing uh, stringed instruments. And he asks Dane if he would teach him. And Dane agrees. It's at this part of the Crouch story that I want to quote him at some length. Crouch writes, and I quote, Learning cello is a weekly reminder that true power multiplies when it is shared. Dane has power that I do not have. Right, the power to play the cello. I have some power of my own, of course, the ability to pay him a fair wage for his time. But the exchange of money involved in cello lessons perfectly illustrates how different power is from money. He continues. After every cello lesson, I pay Dane $50. When I walk into his studio, I have $50 in my pocket. After I walk out, I have 50 fewer dollars, and Dane has $50 more. This is what game theorists call zero-sum transaction. Dane's wealth increases by precisely the amount my wealth decreases. But the same is not true of power. This is very good. At the beginning of the lesson, Dane has a substantial amount of power to play the cello, and I have a small amount. But in the course of the lesson, I acquire a bit more cello-playing power. And this increase in my power does no damage at all to Dane's power. This is what game theory calls a positive sum transaction. Right? At the end of the lesson, the total amount of power in the world to play the cello has increased. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that when we mentor and teach and disciple and empower others, we don't lose our power. But rather, because of this investment, there's more power in the world. Dane invested his cello playing power into Andy. And as a result, there's not just one cello player, there's now two. Right? I can think of 
plenty of examples of this in my own life. When I first moved to Vermont in 2012, I was given a fly rod and some waders and some boots and was asked by a friend who gifted these things to me to go and learn how to fly fish so that when he came up to visit, he wouldn't have to pay for a guide. I had no idea what I was doing. I put on my waders. I cinched on my belt. My wife took a cute picture of me in my little costume. And then I drove to a river that in all likelihood held zero trout. But because I had no idea how to read water, I went to it and I stomped around. If there was, I scared them into the lake for Kyler to catch them. Right? I don't know, seven years later. (laughs) But I had no idea what I was doing. I was really close to just giving up when one day a guy named Kevin McMahon came up to me and he asked me, he said, are you a wannabe or are you for real? And I had no idea what he was talking about. So I asked him, what are you talking about? He said, fly fishing. Are you a wannabe or are you for real? I said, I'm a wannabe who wants to be for for real. And he invited me over to his house. He printed out um, some Google Earth satellite images of rivers around Vermont. And he had zoomed in and he had put X's on the maps and said, you stand here and you cast here and you let your line drag this way. And he gave me a bunch of flies. And he gave me journals, which was not his diary entries. They were logs of every time he had gone fishing in the past maybe 20 years, what the t- rivers were like, what the temperature was, what flies he used. And he said, I want you to study this. He took me under his wing. I became an apprentice of his. And because of his investment in me, there's now not just one angler in Vermont, there's two. I'm not as good as Kevin, but I'm becoming one, right? Mitch Ravito is a friend who's patiently taught me how to backcountry ski. Both Kevin, both Mitch have used their power. They've used their talents. They've invested their time into another person, into me, and consequently, there's a multiplication of power happening, one turning into two. There are other examples of you all, right here in this room, of you using your power to unleash more power and more goodness in the world. Grace Colbert, whom some of you know, uh, is a Teach for America teacher. Grace, who graduated last year, could probably teach anywhere in the world. She is incredibly gifted. But she is using her privileges and her education and her experience and resources. And she's investing in children who go to school in a very rough neighborhood in Boston. Sophia is going to use her power, her education and experience as an on-call nurse at an orphanage in Tijuana this summer. John Ferry is going to use his power, his education, his experience to assist rural hospitals in Tanzania as a biomedical technician this summer. Some of you are going to serve as orientation leaders. Some others are going to assist professors in their research. Some of you will work at a summer camp. There are plenty of examples that abound in this room, but the principle is the same. Power is not meant to be hidden or buried or used only to enrich ourselves. 
power is meant to be put to good use, to be traded and exchanged. It's meant to be used to empower other people. And done well, it multiplies. But just because empowering others is a positive sum gain, generating more total power in the world does not mean that it's easy or free. Quoting Andy Crouch one more time, there's a kind of suffering required to enter into the virtuous cycle of creative power, and the suffering is required of both student and teacher. I could, after all, remain in my home and never submit to cello lessons, never embarrass myself in front of my neighbor. And as a teacher, Dane has his own vocation to suffering, right? The call to patience. There is a reason many great performers are poor teachers. They're unwilling to suffer little children to come unto them. What Crouch is saying is that it's easier, right, to bury our power, to hide it, to keep it to ourselves. It's easier to do that. It's harder to invest it in other people. Right? There's a sacrifice that's involved when we do that. This investing power costs us. Right? It can feel risky. Which is why Crouch concludes, the true power that is available to us, the power that multiplies power, lies on the other side of the choice to empty ourselves of power. And this brings me to our third and final point. Okay, the exercise of good power requires that we stay connected to the power source. Okay, the exercise of good power requires that we stay connected to the power source. As soon as the sound equipment behind me is unplugged, it ceases to work. And as soon as this iPhone is unplugged from the wall, Power slowly but surely drains from it. And if I don't plug it in, it will cease to work. And the same is true of us. Right? In order for us to be generous with power, we need to be connected to the one who has a bunch of it. Right? God himself. As you go off into your summer... And seniors, as you go off into the next chapter of your lives, I want to encourage you to stay connected to Jesus, right? To stay connected to him and to continuously get yourself reconnected right to him. Connected to Jesus, here is what you will discover. You will discover a God who had everything, heaven, Right? A glorious relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. But he was willing to invest. He was willing to let go of it all, right? to take on flesh, and to move into the roughest neighborhood, planet Earth, right? and to suffer and to die for our sake. Connected to God, you will discover that. You will discover more than that. You're going to discover more than an example You're going to discover my chains fell off and I've been set free. My God and Savior has ransomed me. You're going to discover amazing grace, that he became poor so that we could become rich, that he gave up his life so that we can live forever with him. And that's not all. 
More than an example and more than a fresh start, Jesus will give you his spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Empowered by all of these, his example, his life, his liberation, his spirit, indeed the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave, Jesus finally gives you this charge to go, right? And to make disciples, to be his witnesses, to spread his love. And as you do, one will become two, and two will become four, and four will become eight, and eight will become 16, and so on. Jesus gives you his charge, his power, and this command, go. Be salt, be light. Use your power and use your influence to make the world a better and more beautiful place. Where there is good, let there be that much more of it. Where there are lies, let there be truth-telling. Where there is hurt, let there be healing. And where there is death, let there be life. Pay attention to your power. Invest it. Don't bury it. Stay connected to the power source. Let's pray.